Hello, and welcome to Can't Make This Shit Up, a true crime podcast. I'm Cassie, a true crime enthusiast. And I'm Mark, her dad, a true crime professional, currently a traffic homicide detective in South Florida. And we hope you guys enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. We took a week off last week, but this week, as promised, we're back with part two of our coverage of the Remnant Fellowship Church. This is going to be a three-parter all the way through, so this is going to be part two, and then next week we'll release part three, because there's just a lot of crazy information. Excellent, excellent. So last we left off, Gwen Shamblin had begun a religious weight loss program called the Way Down Workshop which she'd implemented in thousands of churches around the world. And in 1999, she finally opened her own church, which was known as the Remnant Fellowship. So Gwen believed she was God's prophet. He's blessed her with a weight loss strategy, which has worked to rid the world of all its evils. (laughs) So now we're going to take it back to 1984. Oh, all right. In Los Angeles, California. City of Angels. The City of Angels. I'm going to introduce you to some new characters in this saga. Okay. At the time, it was 16-year-old Natasha Pavlovich, and she was living in L.A., trying to become an actress. She met 21-year-old Joe Lara in an acting class. The two were both young, extremely attractive, and quickly fell in love. And they dated on and off for years. Joe had grown up in a wealthy family and grew accustomed to a certain lifestyle. Although as an aspiring actor, he rarely had the means to support the sort of lifestyle he expected and would often, during times he and Natasha weren't seeing each other, he would date older, wealthy women and basically convince them to take care of him financially. (laughs) Okay. Eventually, Joe convinced these women to give him enough money that he bought a piece of property in Palmdale where he placed a trailer and then he moved into the trailer. (laughs) Okay. While living on this property, Joe developed an intense alcohol and drug addiction. His ex, Natasha, told HBO, quote, his whole life is how to evade paying anything. But having a lifestyle of fun and doing what he likes to do, mostly his hobbies, which are flying and falconry. Oh, okay. Yeah, interesting hobbies. Yeah. In 2007, after over 20 years of dating on and off, Natasha finally broke things off with Joe for good, or so she thought. A year later, in 2008, Joe called Natasha and expressed his love for her. Natasha explained, quote, at that age, my biological clock was ticking and I still had hope maybe for him. So I fell for him again. This time, the couple stayed together until 2010 when Natasha had their daughter. Following the birth of their baby, the couple decided to move to Nashville because Joe had decided that he wanted to pursue a career as a country music star. Okay. Yeah, he was like 40 years old and was like, I'm going to become a star. That's quite a departure from flying and falconry. Yeah. 
Yeah, he played. He learned how to play the the guitar, and he was on his way. And he did all this in in California. Yeah, and now and he's you know, moving. California's known for great country music. So, yeah. <laughs> so now he's moving to good old Nashville. Of course he is. However, in 2015, after Natasha had supported the family by herself for five years while Joe tried to make it as a country singer, she'd finally decided that it was time for Joe to give up his country music dream and get a real job in order to help her provide. However, Joe refused. So as a result, the couple decided to split up and Natasha decided that she wanted to move back to her hometown of Chicago because she already owned property there. And she had family there who were willing to help her care for her daughter as a single parent. Okay. Joe was not on board for this idea. Of course he wasn't. So not wanting Natasha to leave Tennessee, he went to Nashville police in the children's department and claimed that Natasha had sexually assaulted their four-year-old daughter. Oy vey. So the police arrested Natasha immediately. However, after extensively interviewing their daughter, investigators soon realized that Joe's claims were a full lie. Right. So what a piece of shit. So they arrested her before they knew the full story. I guess whatever he told them was enough to initially arrest her. Wow. Okay. That's all right. Shortly after this, Joe, who had never been religious before, joined the Remnant Fellowship Church. (laughs) Okay where he eventually met none other than Gwen Shamblin. A.K.A. Crazy Hair. Crazy Hair. (laughs) Joe quickly realized that Gwen was not only his meal ticket, but also his key to fame, and set to work seducing her, and was eventually successful because the two married in 2018. Oh, she wasn't already married? I forget. Well, it's it's interesting you ask that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm getting ahead of myself again, aren't I? You sure are. Following their marriage, Joe moved into Gwen's 25-acre, seven-bedroom plantation estate. And despite Joe's lack of experience, Gwen quickly granted him a leadership position within the church as well. Oh, okay. One ex-follower whose name is Bob Bean. What a good name, Bob Bean. Bean? Isn't that a good one? Robert Bean. Good old Bobby Bean. Bobby. Bobby Bean. So he stated, quote, I had a lot of respect for Gwen and I enjoyed Gwen's services. I learned from it. But after Joe Lara came into the picture, her sermons got real short and they would take vacations. She was doing everything she could to keep Joe happy. And to my knowledge, that's what she's still doing. To me, Joe Lara is a bought and paid for by Gwen Shamblin escort. Plain as it gets, he was flat broke and he'd seen an opportunity and he took it. Okay. Did he, I guess he forgot about his wife or let her move back to Chicago or? No. So she's still, good question. She's still in Tennessee at this point. They're in the midst of going through their like custody battle and all that. Gotcha. Okay. However, as you've already alluded to, there was one major issue with this new relationship. Gwen had already been married for nearly 40 years at the time that she'd met Joe Lara. 40 as in four zero. Correct. She'd been married to a man named David Shamblin since 1978, and the pair also had two adult children together. And were they part of the church thing? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. 
smell a scandal. Oh, there is a scandal. We're going to get there. (laughs) My favorite former member, her name's Helen Bird. I'm just going to call her from now on my favorite former Helen because she's the best. Okay. She said this, quote, I just don't understand how you get divorced. And then like before the ink is dry, you're engaged. Get the fuck out of here with that. Okay. Just miss me completely like the broadside of a bus. Just miss me completely with that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy. You can see why she's my favorite. Yeah. 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 She's sassy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, is that what we're calling that now? Oh yeah. She's sassy. All right. And she gets sassier as we go. Ooh. All right. In the 90s, when Gwen was first building her way down workshop empire, her first husband, David, had been very involved and would even make appearances alongside her. He had a master's degree in divinity and was one of the original eight founding members of the Reverend Fellowship. A master's in divinity? Yeah, so basically like a master's in religious studies. Oh, okay, okay, okay. However, as the years wore on, followers saw less and less of David. According to Reverend Martinez, this was because as Gwen's teachings got less and less orthodox and she began making more and more money off of religion, David, who was a very devout Christian, began to purposely distance himself from the church. Eventually, he refused to attend altogether and would not come to any way down workshop events either. Some ex-followers suspect that part of the reason was also because David was overweight. As favorite follower Helen explained, (laughs) quote, he definitely didn't represent everything that Gwen was saying was right or righteous because, you know, he was overweight. So how could he be right or righteous if he's overweight? Very true in that religion. Yeah, because that's she claims the holier you are, the skinnier you are. So that's it. But now that applied. Well, I'm assuming because, I mean, this is kind of a, a dumb question, but I. Assuming that it was applied to men, too, that were in the religion? Yes. Because initially it kind of seemed like it was really kind of one-sided towards female, towards the female populace. Yeah, it, it was geared towards men and women. Okay, all right. Following her divorce from David, what do you know? Gwen began preaching that suddenly divorce was perfectly okay in God's eyes. <laughs> okay. But conveniently, only during certain circumstances. Ah, okay. So there was like an asterisk on that. Correct. All right. So during one sermon in particular, which she performed alongside Joe, she stated, quote, a lot of people have come from what we'd call dysfunctional homes. But now's our chance in this generation to stop these generational curses and get in there and realize that, you know, we got to go for it. There's obviously cases of divorce that, you know, God allows as much as he hates it. Yeah, sure. Very convenient timing. Yeah, it's funny how they can alter the rules or the laws or the, to accommodate their mission or their, you know, their ideals. And then that right, Many women within the church were appalled by Gwen's behavior, as many had been involved in unhappy or abusive relationships for years and had not been allowed to divorce under any circumstances. Favorite follower Helen said, quote, All of those years, you have told people to suffer through their marriage. But then whenever the spirit hits you, you done had a whole change of heart. Well, now it's okay to get a divorce. It's okay now. Now it's okay, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Miss me. (laughs) She is not having any of Gwen's bullshit. God bless Helen. Helen's the best. Helen for president. 
Oh, okay. Let's slow down a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Following their marriage, Gwen set her sights on winning custody of Joe and Natasha's child. She hired very expensive lawyers who began attacking Natasha as a mother in an attempt to get her daughter removed from her care. Natasha spent over $200,000 in legal fees before ultimately running out of money and deciding to represent herself. That's never a good plan. Well, it actually ended up working out pretty well for Natasha. Oh, all right then. Stand corrected. The same attorney, Jason Wheatley, who had defended Joe Lara during their custody battle, also defended many Remnant Fellowship men when their wives attempted to leave them and the church. As former member Rachel explained, quote, they're happy to take care of those legal fees in order to, if there's children involved, that they're going to be kept within the fold, that those children are not going to be lost to the wayward parent, that they are going to be remnant, that they are going to be a bigger group because of the children. Natasha claims that throughout their custody battle, the remnant church had her followed and harassed. Both she and her mother were terrified that Gwen may have resorted to having Natasha killed in order to win custody. Joe's attorney filed an injunction requesting that Natasha not be allowed to mention his religion in court due to his constitutional right to freedom of religion. But Natasha made it very clear that she was planning on filing an appeal. At that point, Joe's attorney attempted to settle the case outside of court because once an appeal is filed, it becomes public record, and the church did not want their dirty laundry aired to the public. I bet they did. Ultimately, a judge ruled that his religion was allowed to be mentioned, and after an eight-and-a-half-day trial, the judge concluded that Natasha would be the primary parent and that she would be solely responsible for all decision-making regarding their daughter. This included decision-making regarding which religious practices their daughter was exposed to. Wow. So she won. Yeah, that's huge. Good for her. That usually doesn't turn out well. (laughs) Strangely, following Gwen's divorce, several of her closest followers also filed for divorce, and Gwen paid for her followers' attorney's fees. One ex-member who remained anonymous during the documentary, but went by the codename Sarah, claimed that when she decided to divorce her husband, Gwen forbade her, assured her that if she left the church, she would pay all of Sarah's husband's legal fees and would not rest until her ex-husband received full legal custody of Sarah's children. Damn. Sarah knew that she would need to do something drastic in order to protect her children. So if Gwen Shamblin was the queen of Revenant Fellowship, her son Michael and her daughter Elizabeth were the prince and the princess. Michael was in charge of leading worship services and music performances for the church, while Elizabeth led the Remnant Fellowship Youth Group. Michael Shamblin, Gwen's son, suffers from depression, which is not allowed within the church. Because their belief is that one who is truly filled with the spirit is blessed with happiness and has no reason to be depressed. So if you're depressed, then you're not filled with the spirit. Okay. Yeah, we can't have that. Michael, probably as a result of his depression, had difficulty maintaining his weight. And when he was heavier than his mother approved of, he was not allowed to appear on stage at any church or weigh down events. As former member Teresi explained, quote, Michael goes up and down in his weight. And when he is overweight, he is not allowed on the stage except to do his own songs. And then once he finishes his music, he's gone. He's off the stage. 
Furthermore, Michael refuses to adhere to the moral principles set forth by his mother. Although married, Michael is known to have had several affairs and has a severe alcohol addiction. Mm. One night, Michael began hitting on anonymous ex-follower Sarah. Sarah knew that this was her opportunity to make a clean escape from the church and immediately began reciprocating. Following the event, the two began texting frequently and eventually began an affair. Of Michael, Sarah said, quote, he always brought over a bottle of Jack Daniels and had already been consuming alcohol. It was always apparent. You could see the pain in his eyes as he revealed the long suffering that he had endured because of his mom. The fact that he was in a loveless marriage and had to perform his duties to please his mom. He told me that he was so angry that he would shoot at the church at night sometimes. I remember telling myself, I hope my child is never in that place on the day that he loses it. Oh, boy. Finally. Nasty to everybody. I think she was nice as long as you met her expectations. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, that's true. And the minute that you didn't, it was like over. Right. Finally, when Sarah left, she had enough incriminating information. She texted Michael and told him that if he did not get his mother to stop threatening a legal battle against her, that she would release all of the information she had on him and their affair. Sarah's threat worked, and eventually she was able to leave the church, divorce her husband, and now has full custody of her children. However, she does admit, quote, I do take ownership in the fact that I took part in his vulnerability, in his pain. But when I thought about the pain that his mom had created for hundreds, that couldn't even compare. Yeah, he was a necessary uh, cog in that whole plan, so. Yeah, she had to get out. You have to take care of yourself and your children, and sometimes you have to, you know. Two things that you may not like, but. One evening, Gwen's daughter, Elizabeth, her fifth child, who was an infant, died in his sleep. In the days following the death, church members were forbidden from talking about it. One ex-member, Gina, explained, quote, Gwen, all she talked about was all those blessings from God if you obey and if you're in the true church. And now the leader's grandson had just died. And if anything bad ever happened to the church, God was judging us. So everyone was looking at themselves going, was it me? Did I cause this? I mean, this is just how the depths of where she had us in our walk with God. And then the next thing was, we're not going to talk about this anymore. They knew people were going to be questioning. What's going on here? Why would this be happening? God's judging us somehow. And if it's not us, is it them? So they were shutting that all down. She had them all brainwashed. Yeah. Shortly after Gwen's grandson's death, Gwen directed the church's leaders to get to the bottom of which followers were sinning enough to bring about the wrath of God. One ex-member, Gina, recalled that she was called into the church to have a meeting with her husband as she was suspected of being one of the causes of Gwen's grandson's death. Her sin had brought it about. Sure. Meanwhile, following her son's death, Elizabeth Shamblin developed a severe eating disorder and became noticeably and extremely thin. This girl, I I don't know how she's still alive. That's how thin she was. Oh, she went the opposite way. I guess she started not eating or. Yeah, not a surprising outcome, given the fact that she was forced to hide the grief of losing a child. Absolutely. As ex-member Rachel stated, quote, I couldn't even imagine if I lost one of my children and to have to act like nothing happened. 
and to not be able to grieve that child. Yeah, that's horrible. Gwen began encouraging all of the members of Remnant to homeschool their children and to utilize only Remnant-affiliated babysitters to watch their children when needed. As cult interventionist Reverend Rafael Martinez explained, quote, the Remnant culture is completely devoted to controlling its exposure to the external world, which is why they created a whole series of networks involving childcare and homeschooling initiatives as a means, of course, of keeping the children within the milieu of the group. Because of the remnant fellowship culture, you could leave your children with other adults easily. Children can be watched over by anyone older than they. The authority line doctrine empowers children as young as nine to discipline children who are as young as five, simply because they are older, without any input from parents at all. Oh, wow. So, recipe for disaster. Oh, yeah, you think? In addition to weight loss and the skinniness of church members, Gwen also began pointing to the children within the church and their obedient nature as a sign that God favored them and that they were the one true church, which is why they had such well-behaved children. Because of this, Gwen also began instructing parents to discipline misbehaving children harshly. She directed and expected parents to utilize corporal punishment in order to force disobedient children to behave. In one Remnant Fellowship audio tape from 2002 called Disciplining Children, Gwen stated, quote, When the parents stand, the children stand. When the parents sit, they sit. They are looking to the parents for the lead. Gwen told the children, quote, The way you show God that you are answering to him is through obeying your mother and your father on the first time. If you obey the second and the third time, or you're slow to obey, then you are being your own God, and nobody playing around like that can ever go to heaven. So you will only live for a few years on earth, and then you will have a horrible afterlife. If you do not obey mommy and daddy the first time, you will be taken out, and you will be very, very sorry. And that's like targeting them early to get them brainwashed early to. Oh, yeah. In a parenting video released by the church, Gwen stated, quote, we are living in a world where parents are desperate for answers on how to handle the increasingly immoral children of today. And they're distraught as they watch the average child just walk away from their church after their senior year of high school. Two thirds walk away. People ask us what we teach to have such godly children. Keep in mind, these children are not in a Sunday school program. These children hear the same words as the adults do week after week after week, year after year. And they learn the passion from watching the passionate people in this church worship. One former follower, Gina Wilson, claimed, quote, I had two little ones that were not behaving well. They're not sitting still all the time in three hour services. So I'm not training them correctly. And the way to train them is to spank them until they cry or I'm not spanking them hard enough. I went to Gwen another time telling her, you know, I just can't spank them. I can't spank them this hard and it's not making any difference. There's someone in the church that told me, use a glue stick. You use it like a switch. It was one of them long ones, you know, not the short ones. So she took the glue stick and she tested it on her arm. She tested it on her leg. You know, I think she even tested it on her hand. Wow, that does. I can see how that would sting. And she was like, yeah, maybe that's what you need to use. So I walked out of there thinking, okay, I've got her approval to use this glue stick. And I used it once. And I'm like, nope, never again. I am not doing this to my kids. And I threw it away. That's fucking child abuse. 
Yeah, it's horrible. Plain and simple. Plain and simple. During one sermon, Remnant leader David Martin preached about the importance of obedient children and announced to the congregation that he had to spank his own children upwards of 30 times in one sitting in order to discipline them appropriately. Oh, my God. In one Remnant Fellowship tape, he was recorded saying, quote, Jennifer and I have been blessed with this advice from Gwen, and I can't tell you what a difference it's made. A year ago, our two-and-a-half-year-old Avery, we had a real showdown with her. Her will was just, was ruling, and enough was enough. And we had a leg spanking over and over and over and over and over and over again. And that has been a different child. A two and a half year old. I want to fucking vomit. It makes me so mad. And it gets worse. Oh, great. Former member Terry Phillips recalled, quote, I remember at one point a family did take my kids in for two weeks. When I would picked up my kids, they'd been spanked by the mother. And when I picked them up, they were like Stepford children. It was like I didn't recognize them. They didn't hug me. They stood there and said, can we get your suitcase and take them upstairs to you? And we got home. And then they said, is there anything we can do for your mom? And I'm like, these are not my children. They're like four and a half years apart and they fight. And I was like, these are not my children. And it took about a day before they got back to normal. But that was two weeks and they were changed in two weeks. I can't imagine what they would do if they had been with them long term. All of the remnant leaders encouraged parents to spank their children with whatever objects were handy. Some of the items former members claimed they were encouraged to use were glue sticks, wooden spoons, spatulas, belts, among other things. One former member who wished to remain anonymous claimed her son came home from a remnant babysitter covered in bruises. And when she confronted the babysitter, the babysitter willingly admitted that she had beaten her child on the legs repeatedly with a wooden spoon because he'd been wiggling during diaper changes. What? what? Yeah. Because he'd been moving while she was changing his diaper. Okay. Yeah. One remnant member. So this is where it gets. Sorry, that's just I don't have tolerance for that shit. I don't. That's, I hope something happens to all these people, right? Like they get fucking arrested or beaten or killed or well, probably nothing. I'm, I would hope so. God. So the, just trigger warning. This is where uh, it gets bad for child abuse. Not that what already was said wasn't bad. Yeah, but I was say, okay, but all right. One remnant member, Joseph and Sonia Smith, They lived in Atlanta, Georgia, and were devout members of the church. Through Gwen's weight loss program, Joseph had lost 65 pounds. Joseph and Sonia's middle son, who was also named Joseph, began to exhibit some severe behavioral issues, according to his parents. They claimed he was becoming increasingly violent, and he'd begun stealing the family's kitchen knives and was hiding them under his bed. They also claimed he'd begun threatening the youngest son's life, who was an infant at the time. The parents decided to go to Gwen and requested help in treating their son's behavior, as they were not allowed to seek assistance outside of the church. They would later claim that Gwen directed them to utilize severe corporal punishment to correct Joseph's behavior. During the Easter worship service in 2003, a former remnant babysitter whose name was Laura Boone recalled, quote, I saw Joseph in the corner, very upset, crying. 
As the parents were headed into the worship service, I stopped his dad and said, sir, is there a game or a toy or anything that could help your son calm down? And that's when he just looked at me and said, just hit him hard. And I said, sir, I don't feel comfortable hitting your son. And he said, no, really hit him hard. Again, I said no. And he took his son into the next room and we could hear him hitting his son hard. Joseph was wailing. They came back and Joseph was still visibly upset, obviously. And all the parents went into the worship service as if that was normal. That was the last time I ever babysat for him at fellowship. The following year on July 23rd, 2004, the couple's infant son, Malik Smith, was found dead in his crib. And the death was labeled a result of SIDS or sudden infant death syndrome. Eleven weeks later, the couple's middle son, Joseph, was also found unresponsive in the home. The paramedics were called, and he was rushed to the ER, but unfortunately did not survive his injuries. However, authorities and medical staff were appalled at the severity of the injuries found on Joseph's body. Eleanor Odom, the assistant district attorney who would later prosecute the case, described the state of the crime scene when first responders arrived, saying, quote, the EMTs that first responded, they talked about it being such a bad case that they had ever seen. The emergency room physician where they first took the child said it was the worst case he'd ever seen. It was pretty clear that the child was killed just from several of the actions of the parents and also the injuries to the child's body. The child had injuries pretty much everywhere on his body except for the palms of his hands and the soles of his feet. Detective David Schweizer had been the one to investigate the death of Malik earlier in the year, and once again, he returned to the home to investigate Joseph's death as well. When Detective Schweizer questioned Joseph and Sonia about the son's death, they admitted that Joseph had had severe behavioral issues. They claimed they'd been watching a remnant fellowship worship service in their home, and Joseph was being disruptive. So they decided to place Joseph inside of a wicker trunk within their home. However, Joseph kept lifting the trunk's lid to peek out. So his parents slammed the lid down on top of Joseph's head and decided to tie down the trunk's lid with bungee cords with Joseph still inside. Once the worship service was completed, they untied the bungee cords and looked inside the trunk and found Joseph unresponsive. Investigators were unsure whether Joseph had died as a result of the head injuries he'd sustained from the trunk's lid, or if he'd suffocated while inside. Once an autopsy was conducted, it was determined that he'd passed away as a result of a combination of the two. Detective Schweizer explained, quote, I had discovered that a local TV personality had done a story with them because of weight loss. I tried to figure out everything I could find out about the church and their leader. And them, you know... It was brought to my attention that there was a tape. There was a call where Sonia Smith was asking for help about how to discipline Joseph. And one of the members did tell them, you know, use a glue stick. When I came down to the autopsy, I did take glue sticks with me. When you hit skin like that, it pushes the blood out like this and leaves a little mark in the middle, like a white mark. So I could put a glue stick in there and it was a perfect fit. That's what took me to the church. It's fucking disgusting. Disgusting. Because of the claim that the church had possession of this tape-recorded phone call with Sonia Smith, Detective Schweizer secured a search warrant to search Remnant Fellowship. He also made a plea through the media for former members who may have experienced abuse or knew of abuse to step forward. 
When investigators arrived to serve the search warrant, Gwen Shamblin had conveniently just left the property. <laughs> Following their search, police had taken numerous tapes into their custody. Detective Schweizer explained, quote, I was amazed at the number of tapes. Apparently, they would record everything and keep everything. And it's kind of funny that I walked into this little warehouse and was drawn into this one section, and I found the tape within a short time. Here is what was said on the tape. Oh, God. Sonia, which is Joseph's mom, states, quote, Hi, this is Sonia Smith in Atlanta. Gwen responds, Sonia, you have four children. Go ahead, Sonia. Sonia says, quote, Well, first, I want to thank you. Last week, my seven-year-old, he was going through some changes. He was very destructive. I did exactly what Ted told me to do, to spank him on the back of his thighs, take everything out of his room, and I locked him in there from Friday until Monday and only left him in the room with his Bible. And I just praise God. Gwen answers, quote, and that's just from obeying and setting those boundaries, making it clear and just following God's lead. And so people need to know there's hope. And that's a miracle. You've got a child that's going from just bizarre down to in control. So I praise God. We are spoiling these kids. We are ruining their lives by even letting them think about themselves at all. So thank you, Sonia, for sharing that. Once the tape was released through the course of the trial, Gwen claimed that investigators had tampered with the tape. She told Channel 5 News, quote, that tape has been made or tampered or whatever. I totally deny that that has ever been said by anyone. That was not even on there. Okay. They yeah, just she got said, somebody that sounded just like her. Correct. Yeah. According yeah. to Gwen, they just they just wanted to frame the church. Of course. Yeah. Mind you, they'd never even heard of this church prior. Right. Yeah. And trust me, the police departments have that type of ability to do that type of high tech bullshit. Yeah. So, yeah. So she told Channel 5 News that. But the interview also showed how stupid Gwen was because <laughs> because during the same interview, Gwen was asked, quote, you think if you lie for God's sake that it's OK. And Gwen replies, quote, I believe that if God calls you to that, you had better protect Jerusalem. There's so many cases in here by here. She means the Bible where oh. people did the very thing to protect Jerusalem. And so they were rewarded. So she's basically admitting that she would do or say whatever she needed to to protect the church. Unreal. Meanwhile, the church paid for Joseph and Sonia Smith's bond and paid for all of the couple's attorney's fees to fight the charges of child abuse and murder in court. Want to vomit. It's horrible. It's disgusting. Paul Morantz, a cult expert, said, quote, It seems like the church had no sympathy for the boy or any form of remorse that the things that she said might have led to this kid's death, which I think it did. Everything was about, well, we didn't do anything wrong. We're going to financially pay to try to have these people exonerated so they don't think we're responsible. Protecting the image of the church, so they're going to spend every dime to do that. Yep, and they do. During the trial, the Smiths argued that Joseph's head injuries did not stem from the lid of the trunk as they had said originally. They claimed that earlier that day, he'd accidentally struck his head on a banister and as a result had had a seizure and died. They also claimed that what appeared to be bruises all over Joseph's body were actually just rashes caused by eczema. Okay. Let me just tell you, all of my kids have eczema or have had eczema. I've seen those rashes up close and personal. They do not look anything like bruises. None. Eczema does not look like bruises. The fuck out of here. 
Yeah, that's what they claimed in court. Yeah, because doctors and nurses don't know the fucking difference. Yeah. However, the jury was not fooled and found the couple guilty of first-degree murder. Later, following their sentencing, a judge sentenced both Joseph and Sonia Smith to life in prison with an additional 30 years. Excellent. Fuck them. So they're never getting out. Exactly. Following the sentencing, one of the leaders of the Remnant Fellowship stated publicly, quote, these are some of the most loving people. These are people who love their children. And so much of the evidence did not come out in this trial. And we're hoping that the appeal process will bring all the evidence out. And so people will get to know the Smiths because they are innocent. Unbelievable. The church also set up several different websites proclaiming the Smiths' innocence and continued to fund their legal appeals. But three years after the couple's conviction, they lost their appeal to the Georgia Supreme Court and still remain incarcerated today. As well they should be. They should get worse than what they got is all I have to say. They should suffer the same fate. Detective Schweizer told HBO, quote, I believe they were definitely working at the direction of Gwen Shamblin. Maybe they didn't know how to discipline as a parent. You know, it was just unfortunate that I couldn't find enough to go a little further with the church. But you can only do so much. So. Yeah, it's unfortunate. You can't like link the church or link that crazy haired bitch. Yeah, I wish they could have like, you know, put the church on trial or at least Gwen. Yeah. Well, this is where we're going to end part two. Okay. And then we'll be back with part three next week. All right. Yeah, it gets worse from here. Oh, fantastic. Can't wait. Okay, so this question is from Anastasia. So hi, Anastasia. Hello, Anastasia. Thank you for the question. Once again, this question's for me. (laughs) Oh, sorry. Did that slip out? Do you ever begin to research a case and then decide not to cover it for any reason? Oh, that is a good question. So... The answer is that hasn't happened thus far. The only thing that I will do is sometimes I will start to research a case and then kind of realize, okay, I'm not going to do this as soon as I thought I was. Like, for example, if we just did like a missing persons case and then I start researching another case and it's also a missing persons case, I'll, you know, I'll try to kind of like separate them a little bit. Or sometimes I just like won't be in the, because like the types of cases that, are hard for me to research is like anything with children and anything with like domestic violence kind of triggers me. So I will sometimes if I'm just like, for whatever reason that week, I'm not in the mental like headspace to deal with that. I'll try and find like a case that doesn't, doesn't involve those things. Right. But I think every type of case deserves to be covered for the victim's sake, whether it's like children or, or domestic violence or, or anything. So I, I'll never really, like, not cover a case. It's just yeah. sometimes I have to be in, like, the right headspace. Yeah, postpone it or or if you've done too many, re- if you've researched too many that are too heavy, you know, everyone, not, I mean, not that just a plain old murder case is not heavy, but, you know. Yeah, but some are heavier than others, for sure. Yeah, of course, yeah. And and cases with children and stuff are, are, are the worst, so. Yeah, and. Sometimes the other part, too, is like if it's if it's a case with a lot of information that I know is going to have to be like multiple parts, I'll try to like kind of separate those sometimes, too, because, you know, I'll, I'll throw in one where it's like, OK, I can do all of the information in one episode. Right. But yes, Anastasia, if that answers your question, I never don't cover a case. It's just 
you know, dependent on circumstance and timing sometimes. But thank you for the question. Good answer. Well, next week we'll finish up this case. We'll tie it up or at least we're going to finish what's available now. There may, who knows what's going to come out later because spoiler alert, this, this thing's still going on. So, Oh, it's still an active, uh, still an active cult. So we'll, we'll, uh, we can update from time to time or yeah. If anything else comes out in the future, I'll definitely update it. So there may be, you know, further parts in the future, but as of now we have one part left and um, we'll do it next week. So until then, bye. Bye. I'm saying.